Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello there. So, did you know that's a wrap, my OOB tears? Well, with the book of Genesis, anyway. After today, Genesis and Job will be down with only 64 more to go. We got this, right? <laughs> oh, my. With that in mind, we'll focus our studies in today's episode to finishing the last two chapters in the book of Genesis, and then we'll move our attention onto the next book to come in our chronological study, Exodus. I've noticed it said in quite a few different ways in my research to date, but the bottom line message I'm seeing is this. You cannot cut the ties between Genesis and Exodus. One leads into the next in this developing storyline of God's people, as told and written by Moses. Okay, more on all that to come, but for now, let's read chapters 49 and 50 straight on through and then take a deeper dive into the themes and storyline we find in them. Genesis chapter 49, from the New Living Translation of the Bible, begins, Jacob's last words to his sons. Then Jacob called together all his sons and said, Gather around me, and I will tell you what will happen to each of you in the days to come. Come and listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, the child of my vigorous youth. You are first in rank and first in power. But you are as unruly as a flood, and you will no longer be first. For you went to bed with my wife. You defiled my marriage bed. Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. Their weapons are instruments of violence. May I never join in their meetings. May I never be a party to their plans. For in their anger they murdered men, and they crippled oxen just for sport. A curse on their anger, for it is fierce. A curse on their wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter them among the descendants of Jacob. I will disperse them throughout Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all the nations will honor. He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. Zebulun will settle by the seashore, and will be a harbor for ships. His borders will extend to Sidon. Issachar is a sturdy donkey, resting between two saddle packs. When he sees how good the countryside is and how pleasant is the land, he will bend his shoulder to the load and submit himself to hard labor. Dan will govern his people like any other tribe in Israel. Dan will be a snake beside the road, a poisonous viper along the path that bites a horse's hooves so its rider is thrown off. I trust in you for salvation, O Lord. Gad will be attacked by marauding bands, and he will attack them when they retreat. Asher will dine on rich foods and produce fit for kings. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is the foal of a wild donkey, the foal of a wild donkey at a spring, one of the wild donkeys on the ridge. Archers attacked him savagely. They shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained taunt and his arms were strengthened by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the shepherd, the rock of Israel. May the God of your father help you. May the Almighty bless you with the blessings of the heaven above and blessings of the watery depths below, and blessings of the breasts and womb. 
May my fatherly blessings on you surpass the blessings of my ancestors, reaching to the heights of the eternal hills. May these blessings rest on the head of Joseph, who is a prince among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, devouring his enemies in the morning and dividing his plunder in the evening. These are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said as he told his sons goodbye. He blessed each one with an appropriate message. Jacob's Death and Burial Then Jacob instructed them, Soon I will die and join my ancestors. Bury me with my father and grandfather in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. This is a cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite as a permanent burial site. There Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried. And there I buried Leah. It is the plot of land and the cave that my grandfather Abraham bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished his charge to his sons, he drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and joined his ancestors in death. Genesis chapter 50 Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph told the physicians who served him to embalm his father's body, so Jacob was embalmed. The embalming process took the usual forty days, and the Egyptians mourned his death for seventy days. When the mourning period was over, Joseph approached Pharaoh's advisors and said, Please do me this favor and speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. Tell him that my father made me swear an oath. He said to me, Listen, I am about to die. Take my body back to the land of Canaan and bury me in the tomb I prepared for myself. So please allow me to go and bury my father. After his burial, I will return without delay. Pharaoh agreed to Joseph's request. Go and bury your father, as he made you promise, he said. So Joseph went up to bury his father. He was accompanied by all of Pharaoh's officials, all the senior members of Pharaoh's household, and all the senior officers of Egypt. Joseph also took his entire household and his brothers and their households. But they left their little children and flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. A great number of chariots and charioteers accompanied Joseph. When they arrived at the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan River, they held a very great and solemn memorial service with a seven-day period of mourning for Joseph's father. The local residents, the Canaanites, watched them mourning at the threshing floor. Then they renamed that place, which is near the Jordan, Abel Mizraim, for they said, This is a place of deep mourning for these Egyptians. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried his body to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre. This is the cave that Abraham had bought as a permanent burial site from Ephron, the Hittite. Joseph reassures his brothers. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, Please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. The Death of Joseph So Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph lived to the age of 110. He lived to see three generations of descendants of his son Ephraim, and he lived to see the birth of the children of Manasseh's son Machir, who he claimed as his own. Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. 
he will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, When God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him, and his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, friends. First off, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, let's be sure to take a moment to celebrate for a bit right now, shall we? We just finished our second full book of the Bible. Genesis, check. Job, check. We did it. And my, oh my, what a storyline to end on, am I right? Before we move any further, but after we finish celebrating, of course, let's have Tara Lee Cobble and the Bible Recap help us to process what we just heard in chapters 49 and 50. Our excerpt from day 29 reads, Jacob continues his final blessing by gathering his sons, and boy does he get precise. His words reflect a lot of the things we've seen happen, as well as some things yet to come, some prophecies. You probably remember Reuben, the oldest, who slept with his father's concubine. Jacob retracts his preeminence. The oldest loses his birthright here, just like we saw happen with Ishmael and Esau. And maybe you remember Simeon and Levi, his second and third sons, who slaughtered all the men of Shechem in retaliation for the rape of their sister Dinah. So because of their actions, the birthright status and preeminence pass over them as well. Instead, this blessing lands on the fourth son, Judah. But make no mistake, it wasn't because Judah was perfect. After all, he's the one who slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But that was a different kind of offense in the eyes of their culture. It didn't threaten the family unit like the actions of the other three did. Judah fathered Perez, who is listed in the lineage of Jesus. And by the way, Perez isn't the firstborn either. This law of the firstborn keeps getting violated at any time God repeats himself or creates a theme, it's worth taking notice. All of this, as I've mentioned before, is painting the picture of Christ, our older brother, laying down his rights and privileges to share his inheritance with us. Jacob continues blessing the other brothers, and when he gets to Joseph, there's a distinct blessing for Joseph as well that seems to set him and his descendants apart. More on that in the days to come. At the end of Jacob's blessing, he reiterates his desire to be buried in Canaan. And then we encounter a phrase you may be familiar with, the twelve tribes of Israel. We know that Jacob is Israel, and these are his twelve sons. They will all go on to have many offspring, and each man's offspring belong to his tribe. Did you catch all that? So when you see reference to the twelve tribes of Israel, remember that it's a reference to these twelve sons of Jacob Israel and their corresponding offspring. After Jacob dies, Pharaoh granted them the opportunity to go bury their father in the tomb he requested. When they get to Egypt, Joseph's brothers begin to fear him. They think maybe he's just been holding back and faking it until their dad dies, and now he'll retaliate. They tell him a story about how their father wanted him to forgive them, and maybe it's true, but who knows. Either way, Joseph has already forgiven them and his heart is already free of bitterness, so he takes the opportunity to remind them not of what they did or even of how he has forgiven them, but of who God is. God is the one who went before all of them and made a way, a very difficult way, no doubt, but a way nonetheless, for them to all be alive and provided for through all these circumstances. Then we close the book with Joseph's death. In his final days, he echoes the same desires of his father. He doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. He knew God's promises to give them the land of Canaan would be fulfilled, and he tells them, When that day comes, don't leave my bones behind. Joseph trusted in God's promises. Where did you see your God shot today? Mine was in Jacob's blessing to Judah. If you read it closely, you'll see some real Lion of Judah prophecies about Jesus here. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 gives us a detailed prophecy about the coming ruler of Israel, who is from the tribe of Judah, who will be born in Bethlehem. Does that ring any bell? Images and prophecies of Christ are abundant in the Old Testament. 
so much so that no one could invent it. Some say there are more than 400, but this picture today of Jacob blessing Judah, receive that for yourself, because through Judah, you have been blessed. You have received the promise of the coming Messiah, who reigns forever, and the scepter shall not depart from him. He's our King Jesus, and he's where the joy is. Moving on, let's take a closer look at the prophetic blessings of Jacob as found in chapter 49, while also considering the ties of Jacob and Joseph, both insisting that they be buried in Canaan. Let's listen in about those blessings in a section of the Patriarch Study by Beth Moore titled Prophetic Blessings. She begins, Based on Genesis chapter 49, verses 1-28, through 28, we know at least the following four things about Jacob's words over his sons. 1. They are prophetic. They concern days to come. God's obviously gifted Jacob to foretell something about the future of each son. 2. They are blessings. The double reference of Genesis 49-28 left no room for doubt. I'll warn you in advance, however, that some of them won't seem like blessings. In his commentary on Genesis, Bruce Waltke termed several of them anti-blessings, and you'll soon discover why. We'll discuss later how the harsher ones could still be considered blessings. Number three, they are appropriate. The blessings fit. They are neither unfair nor unwise. And number four, they have long-term effects. They apply to the descendants of the sons as well as the sons themselves. The name of each son represents the entire tribe that will descend from him. As we pour over Jacob's deathbed blessings for his sons, keep all four of these elements in mind. As mentioned, let's consider how anti-blessings like those given to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi could be labeled blessings. Since Waltke introduced the term to us, we'll let him explain. In terms of the nation's destiny, these anti-blessings are a blessing. By demoting Reuben for his turbulence and uncontrolled sex drive, Jacob saves Israel from reckless leadership. Likewise, by cursing the cruelty of Simeon and Levi, he restricts their cruel rashness from dominating. We might call these blessings of restriction. We can relate on both a personal and corporate level. Corporately, we are blessed as readily by those who have been restricted and disallowed to have their authority or power over us as those who have. Personally, God's decision to disallow us to fill roles we, by temperament or history, are unfitted for is also a blessing. Both what we receive and what we don't receive can constitute blessings for us and those around us. God is all-wise. He blesses us as surely by what He does not grant as what He does. In the Old Testament, God could also sanctify a line and change its course. The tribe of Levi was ultimately set apart as priests or assistants to the priests in the worship system God ordained after the Exodus. What changed the course of Levi's line? After the children of Israel rebelled against God and worshipped the golden calf, the Levites were the only ones who voluntarily rallied to God's side, showing zeal for God's honor. The Levites never received an allotment of land in Canaan, but they were servants of God in His sanctuaries. You see, the blessings of Genesis 49 were not sentences. They were prophecies, intentionally incomplete ones. The third element of our book in scriptures assures us each blessing was appropriate. When Jacob blessed his sons, he gave them each a blessing appropriate to him. Jacob was led by God who sees into every heart and every future. I'm not at all sure Jacob had rehearsed or written down a single blessing he gave. Quite likely, the words fell from his lips under the inspiration of God. Did you notice the interruption in the flow between Dan and Gad's blessings? Look at Genesis chapter 49 verse 18, where Jacob suddenly addressed God. What did he say? I trust in you for salvation, O Lord. Jacob seemed almost overwhelmed by the power of the words coming out of his mouth. His own predictions of hostilities against the tribes caused him to stop suddenly and voice his cry of confidence in God's deliverance. 
The fourth and final element is the long-term effect of the sun's actions and their subsequent blessings. Each tribe was somehow marked by its ancestor. An undeniable theme in Genesis is the long-term effects of actions, both positive and negative. As New Testament believers, our foolish actions don't curse our family lines, but they certainly affect them. However, I'm thoroughly convinced that godly actions affect family lines far more than ungodly actions. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, and what is the comparison of impact? In those verses, we see the sins of the parents are remembered to the third and fourth generations, but those who obey God's commands, the unfilling love of a thousand generations, are what is theirs. Earlier, I asked you which of the sons received the most elaborate blessings. The prophecy spoken over Judah and Joseph consumed 10 of 25 verses. Though Joseph is named in the tribal blessings in Genesis, those blessings are thereafter fulfilled in the tribes named for his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph was named the prince among his brothers in Genesis 49:26, but an older brother's tribe was exalted even higher. The far reach of blessing upon the tribes of Israel is never more beautifully displayed than in the prophecy Jacob spoke over Judah. The redemption of this once foolish son is stunning. God tethers his line to eternity with crimson thread, saving earth's crown for his son's head. The lion of the tribe of Judah was the same one who, draped in flesh, rode the donkey's colt down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem as the crowd cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 21 verse 9. He will be acknowledged as the king of all kings, and many crowns will be on his head. Oh, to see Judah's face when he watches every knee bow to King Jesus, the blessed king of the blessed line. No wonder Judah means praise. If you hold your peace, the rocks will cry out. Kneel and receive your blessing, precious one. Christ is your great reward. Isn't that amazing, friends? Blessings upon blessings. Beautiful. Now let's lean into the study a bit more with some thoughts about what we see happening as Jacob's body is taken back to Canaan by his sons in an Egyptian caravan. In Beth Moore's Patriarch study in a section titled The Grandest Finale, we read that in Genesis chapter 47, verses 29 through 31, we are seeing how serious Jacob is about being buried in Canaan as opposed to Egypt, when he made Joseph swear to him he would be buried with his ancestors. The old patriarch did not draw his last breath until he reiterated once more the heightened priority of his burial with his fathers. Jacob's wishes were not for himself. His wishes granted would serve as a life insurance policy of sorts for his descendants. For it is Israel's memory of these ancestors, preserved through burial in a specific memorialized site, purchased for such purpose, that will constitute Israel's sole link to the promised land through the 400 years of exile. In your own words, why was Jacob's reasoning about his burial important to our understanding of Genesis? Israel can be assured that Egypt is not their home, and they would never forget that. Jacob's insurance policy tied his sons and their descendants with a hard, fast knot to the bones of their ancestors in Canaan. He intended they never forget. The timing implied in the text suggests that Jacob died almost immediately after blessing his sons. The best thing about the final chapter of Jacob's life is that he was unafraid to face death and unashamed to speak of it. My heart surges with the description of Jacob drawing up his feet into the bed and breathing his last. The extremities grow cold first, you know. We first met Jacob in Rebecca's womb, refusing to curl up like other infants. Instead, he stretched, strove, and wrestled with his twin. When all was said and done, wrestling characterized his life. In death, however, he found rest. Finally, Jacob curled up as an infant, snuggles down for a long winter's night, and closed his tired eyes. If we remember, in Genesis chapter 46, verse 4, God had promised Jacob, concerning Joseph, that he will die in Egypt with Joseph, attending to him. 
Joseph did wash his father's eyes with his tears and close them with his kisses. The spotlight switches dramatically to a mourning, demonstrative Joseph. We're left to wonder if his grief escalated high above his brother's, and if so, was it because he felt cheated of time? Let's be honest. He also hadn't dealt with as much family baggage as his brothers had through the years. The death of an elderly parent in families with a turbulent history is dear, but also complicated. Memories surface, many wonderful, others painful. Surely you notice that the brothers seem to be mentioned almost in passing throughout the preparations for burial. Have you ever noticed that one person often takes over a loved one's death? I'm not sure family dynamics are ever more, um, dynamic than during the death and burial of a central family figure. Some of us seem paralyzed, some of us subdued, while others go into automatic overdrive. Wouldn't you love to know how the brothers felt as they were surrounded by such Egyptian fanfare? All the way to Canaan. And for crying out loud, the Canaanites even named the place after the Egyptians, and who could blame them? In verse 11, we see that Egypt appeared to claim Jacob in death as one of their exalted own. In fact, Abel Mizrem means the mourning of Egypt. What about the mourning of the Israelites? Do you think Joseph's brothers were blessed by the Egyptian flair of the funeral proceedings? Or shocked? Resentful? Or humbled? Were they thinking, welcome to the Joseph show? Or had they never been so glad he was around? Perhaps the attentions of the sons of Jacob were stolen so thoroughly by their irreplaceable patriarch that they were oblivious to all things Egypt. I have thoroughly enjoyed, though not always agreed with, the Jewish commentary I've quoted many times throughout this study, though lengthy I cannot resist preparing for our conclusion with words once again from the beginning of wisdom. Whatever the route, the long, hot, arduous journey back to Canaan, carrying their father's mummified body to the ancestral grave, must have surely produced powerful feelings in the souls of the brothers, as it surely did into their bodies, especially at the end. Lifting and carrying their father, six on each side, each leaning toward his load and all bending toward one another. The brothers would find walking cumbersome. Now stumbling, now bumping into the one in front or behind, their individual gates would be hampered as if by a limp, and they would see that the progress can be made only together, each one now equally dependent or curved toward the others, all equally the sons of Israel. As if by a limp, how appropriate. After all, the lifeless one they now carried had walked bearing the cadence of divine counter. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peninil, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping. Genesis chapter 32, verses 28 to 31. After burying their father, Joseph and his brothers returned to Egypt. An Israelite would not step foot in Canaan again for 400 years. The graves of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not cease to call home. As for Jacob, he didn't attend his funeral, missed the whole thing. Long before they laid his body to rest in Canaan's grave, he saw God face to face. The sun rose above him as he passed, and Jacob was no longer limping. Oh my goodness, friends, did you pick up on that last part? Jacob now saw God face to face, and he no longer had a limp. So, as we are nearing the end of our time together in Genesis, let's take some time to lean into the story of Joseph a bit more with an overview or summary frame of mind, where we've been in our studies and how it ties to these final moments of the story that seem to culminate in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Pulling from my own thoughts alongside a big-picture story view from Lisa Turkhurst, let's hear some excerpts from a Proverbs 31 Ministries podcast episode titled, There's Always a Meanwhile, and continuing on into another episode titled, Six Practical Steps to Forgive. 
In them, Lisa shares, I want to go to the Bible and really illustrate the multiplied impact of unforgiveness, but also the beautiful reality of what can happen when we choose to forgive. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It says this, You've intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I love that verse. I love taking that verse sometimes and using it in a situation where someone has deeply hurt me or offended me, and I will preach a message to myself. Look, Lisa, that person intended to harm you. Or even if I feel like the enemy is causing some attack in my life. Look, the enemy is intending to harm you, Lisa, but God intends it for good. God can take anything and use it for good. It will not only be to help you get better in your life, but it will be for the saving of other people. It will give you an experience by which you can relate to fellow humans and help them as well. Love that verse. But the context of the story and what Joseph, the person who said that verse, what he had to go through to get to this revelation, well, actually it was 13 years of extreme hardship. And this extreme hardship required Joseph to get to this place. After many seasons, and after Joseph has gone through a process of learning to forgive, you intended to harm me, he's saying to his brothers, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, that's in Genesis 50. Let's go back and find the true context of this story. Genesis chapter 37 starts off by saying in verse 2, This is the account of Jacob's family line. Now, first of all, I want to say something. If somebody is about to give an account of their family line, I would expect a couple of things. I would expect it to go in order, and I would expect them to start off with Jacob's older son and work down to the youngest son, right? And I would expect them to highlight the good parts of Jacob's family. I would not expect them to start out the family line by highlighting one of the younger brothers. And I definitely wouldn't start out by highlighting some dysfunction in the family. And yet this is the part of the beauty of the Bible, that God allows his divinity to be mixed and intermingled with messy humanity. That is what we see in Genesis 37 verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17. See, this is already bothering me because Joseph is one of the younger brothers. I don't know why we're starting with Joseph, but wait, it gets even better than that. He was out tending some flocks with his brothers, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So you see, the dysfunction is already being highlighted here. Not only are we starting out with Joseph, which seems odd to me, but we're also starting out with Joseph tattletaling on his brothers. You see, Joseph was 17, and when you're 17, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. I think it's important to know, too, that Joseph has a major calling on his life. God is going to use Joseph to be a leader, but sometimes leadership comes in an immature package. That immature package is what Joseph is about to put on display here. It says, Now Israel, verse 3. If you remember, Israel is another name for Jacob, which just to give you a little bit of Bible history here, Jacob, this family line that we're talking about from Jacob, is going to come 12 sons. These 12 sons are going to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is the birthplace, if you will, for the entire nation of Israel the people that were prophesied by God to Abraham, that God would bring people that would outnumber the stars in the sands, right? Now we see it coming about. Here comes this family line. Here comes a whole nation of Israel, and it's going to start out from this family line, where we already see some dysfunction. I don't know about you, but that kind of gives me a little hope about my own family line. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Hello? Dysfunctional clue number two, right? Because he had been born to him in his old age. He made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, how do you think that was working for the whole family dynamic? Not very good. Because his brothers, it says in the scripture, they hated him. Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. 
So in the middle of all this dysfunction, Joseph has a dream. But instead of Joseph being self-aware enough like, hey, maybe I should probably keep this revelation, this dream to myself. No, Joseph's 17 and he doesn't know what he doesn't know. So here we go. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were out binding some sheaves of grain in the field. And then suddenly my sheaves rose and it stood upright. Your sheaves, they gathered around my sheaves and bowed down to it. Now y'all, but I'm sorry, Joseph, come on. (laughs) That's like going up to somebody who already doesn't like you and being so braggadocious like, oh, you think you don't like me now? Well, one day you're going to bow down to me, okay? But remember, Joseph's 17 and he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Leadership. This is a leadership revelation that God has given him, that he's going to be a man of leadership. But he is disqualifying himself from being able to leave these brothers because he has not properly handled this responsibility of leadership that he's been given. It says now that his brothers hated him. His brothers, it says in verse 8, said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream and what he had said. You would think at this point that Joseph had learned to tone it down. But nope, nope. Because when you're 17, you don't know what you don't know, right? He has another dream in verse 9 and tells the other dream to his brothers. He says, Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Well, when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, Joseph's brothers, it says in verse 12, they go to tend their father's flocks near Shechem. The father, Jacob, or as the Bible also calls him Israel, is going to send Joseph to check on the brothers. When the brothers see Joseph coming from a distance, if it was a modern day, they would probably start texting each other with, oh my, here comes that dreamer, right? This is not going to be a welcome reception. We find that in verse 18, when they saw him at a distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Verse 19, Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. All right. One of the brothers says, well, let's just wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Then another brother says, I know. Instead of killing him, let's make a profit from him. It says in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. After all, He is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. Verse 28, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 29 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Now, I want to say at this point that what's really happening here to Joseph, we cannot miss humanity of the experience he's having. But we're in the midst of something this difficult, and this would be very difficult. All you can see is what's in front of you. But here's what I want to challenge everyone listening today. There's what we see, and then at the same time, there's what God is doing. The brothers are having a discussion about what do they do. They come up with a plan to tear the robe, to dip it in animal's blood, to take it to the father, convince the father that Joseph has died, and Jacob, his father, is weeping for him. Verse 36. If you write in your Bible, I want you to circle the first word of verse 36. Genesis 37 reads, Meanwhile, the many knights sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Potiphar's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, for time's sake, I want us to go all the way to Genesis 39, which is where Joseph picks back up. But while we're making this transition, I want you to really think. Think about what Joseph felt right about now. Think about how Joseph would have been analyzed his life right now, in this season. All Joseph could probably see was a rejection by his brothers. So painful. 
But remember, there's what we see, and then there's what God is doing. Those two realities are always operating, not only in Joseph's life, but in our life as well. In our life, there's always a meanwhile. What Joseph sees as a rejection, God is seeing as a protection of the calling on Joseph's life. Remember, God had given Joseph a vision to be a leader. He just didn't handle the situation at 17 very well, and so his brothers rejected him. And because he could not lead there, God gets him out of a situation where he cannot fulfill the calling put on him and where he can practice leadership instead, because God is more interested in developing Joseph's character to match his calling than in comforting Joseph and getting him out of the situation that he's in. I guarantee you, as Joseph is probably bound and led by those strangers into a strange land, he is begging God, don't let this happen. Let my brothers feel bad for what they've done. Let them come and get me. Please let my father see the truth that I'm not really dead. But all the while, God is loving Joseph too much to answer his prayer request. Now don't miss this, because it does not feel like a good God should allow this kind of situation. But here's one of the very complex realities of God. We serve a God who will allow hurt, but before you park on that statement, I want you to also remember we also serve a God who will take that hurt and use it for good. Remember, one of the blessings of Joseph's story is that we can read it with Joseph 50, 20 in mind, where Joseph eventually gets to this point. You intended to harm me, but God will use this and has used this for good for the saving of many lives. But Joseph doesn't see this now. However, one of the blessings of reading this story is that while Joseph can't see it, maybe by reading his story, we can start to see it in our own life. I want you to think about a situation where someone's really wronged you. Could it be that what you felt was a terrible rejection, that God actually is using it or has used it as a protection of a calling that he has placed on your life? You may not feel it. You may not see it. You probably don't want to live through it. However, we get to see it in Joseph's story, and that gives me so much encouragement. Listen, I'm telling you what. Over these last couple of years of my life, I've experienced some very extreme rejection, some deep hurt, some deep pain. Sometimes the only thing that has helped me release the pain of that season so I could move on freely into this season without breaking was even before I could see it. Standing on the reality, what they intended to do to harm me, God will use for good, and it will be for the saving of many lives. I'm telling you that that one verse has saved me. That's why I think it's so important for us to look at this. Now at this point, Joseph is in Potiphar's home. Genesis 39 verse 1. Now Joseph's been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now don't miss this. Despite the fact that Joseph was in pain, despite the fact that he was still wrestling with his brother's rejection, I'm sure, he still honored God right where he was. He still had to make the choice to release that situation and let God take care of it, even though his brothers weren't coming to him saying, we're sorry for what we did. However, Joseph was somehow able to set that aside and still honor the Lord right where he was at. We know that from verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant, and Potiphar put him in charge of his household. Okay, really think about this. Now what is Joseph doing? He's leading. He's practicing leadership, friends. He's just been put in charge of a household and he's entrusted everything that he owned to Joseph's care. But things don't go great for Joseph. At this point, I just want us to pause and think. We want Joseph's story to tie up in a neat, nice bow. Joseph has finally reached a good place, so let's just keep him there. But remember, God is developing Joseph's character to match his calling. Joseph is practicing leadership. 
Now, Potiphar's wife, it goes on to say, that she takes a liking to Joseph. Actually, it's kind of a loose translation, but basically she thinks he's hot. I know, I know, it gets really spicy up in here, but I'm just telling y'all, whoever thinks that the Old Testament is boring is very, very wrong because it is not boring. Nope, not at all. Because actually the way that she phrases it, and I'll give you a direct quote from the Bible, in Genesis 39 verse 7 says, And after a while, Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. She makes advances towards Joseph several times, but eventually she gets so tired of Joseph resisting. There's an encounter where he resists her one last time. She falsely accuses Joseph, and Joseph gets thrown into prison. Now remember, there's what Joseph sees, and then there's what God is doing. Joseph sees a problem. Joseph sees commotion. It seems like unnecessary problems and commotion that Potiphar's wife is putting him through. False accusations. That's painful, right? But what Joseph sees is a problem and an unnecessary commotion. God is going to see as a promotion to Joseph's leadership. Because look at the very next verse. We're halfway through verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in prison. It's a promotion, y'all. He's getting promoted to be in charge, to lead even more. He's not just leading a household now. Now he's leading all those in prison. He's putting together systems. He's practicing leadership on some real hard people. If you can lead people in prison, if you can lead there, you might be able to lead anywhere, right? Look at how though God is entrusting more and more and more. Because remember, God is calling Joseph to be a leader. And the calling on our life is probably not going to take shape exactly the way we want it to take shape either. But we can take a look at Joseph's story and get so much encouragement from that. It says in verse 23, The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, while he's in prison, he meets two people, very significant encounters, a cupbearer and a baker. Things don't go well for the baker. You can go on to read all about that. But with these two men, he interprets dreams. Things go a little bit better for the cupbearer. The cupbearer eventually gets released from prison, and Joseph says, in verse 14 of Genesis 40, But when all goes well with you, this is Joseph talking to the cupbearer, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. That does not sound like a man who's like, that's okay. There's what I see and then there's what God is doing. Just like when I'm in the middle of being deeply hurt by people, when people say things about me that are not true, when I feel this thing of rejection, I'm not saying, that's okay. It's God's protection. It's God's promotion. I'm just going to walk in that. But maybe as I mature, maybe as I look at Joseph's story, I can start releasing some of those things so I can take on the beauty of what God wants to entrust me in with this next season. So Joseph does not feel like he's been given a promotion here in prison, and he's probably aggravated because the cupbearer gets out and he does not remember Joseph. In Genesis 41, verse 1, it reads, When two full years had passed, that cupbearer had left Joseph in that prison for two full years. However, I want you to think about something really important. If the cupbearer would have gotten out and mentioned Joseph to Pharaoh, Joseph may have been released from prison. However, that would not have been a blessing for the calling on Joseph's life because Joseph had to stay there for two more years to wait for Pharaoh to have a dream because now the cupbearer is going to remember Joseph. So what we learn in Genesis 41 is when the cupbearer remembers Joseph, he says to Pharaoh, there's this Hebrew man and he's in prison and he can interpret your dream. So in verse 14, it reads, 
So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought up from the dungeon. You know, when it's God's right time, it'll be immediate. God loves us too much to answer our prayer at any other time than the right time. So Joseph is now going to have an audience with Pharaoh, which is crucial because Joseph's calling on his life is to be a leader. If he had previously been released from prison, he would never have had an audience with Pharaoh. So now two years later, the moment is happening. So Joseph then interprets Pharaoh's dreams and dreams that, that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. But Joseph presents an interpretation of the dream. He is also presenting a system by which Pharaoh can ensure the safety of the people. Now, where would Joseph have learned to take a dream and turn it into leadership systems that will actually work to help people? He led in Potiphar's house. He learned how to develop systems. Where else did he learn? In prison, an even bigger place to practice developing systems. You see how what Joseph saw as a rejection, what Joseph saw as a problem, God actually saw as a protection of his calling and a promotion to help Joseph get where he needs to be. Pharaoh likes Joseph's plan so much that he puts him in charge. He becomes the second most powerful man in all the world. He goes from prison to power in an instant because it was God's right time. See, Joseph was not taken from prison to power in an instant, actually. He had been prepared. Now he's almost 30 years old. It took 13 years. So what happens eventually is that there are seven years of plenty, then there are seven years of famine, and the famine extends all the way to Israel, which is where his brothers are. So the brothers come to Egypt looking for food, having no idea that Joseph is in power. Then they go through a process of engaging with Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph really has to work through some forgiveness. But look at where Joseph lands. He lands in Genesis fifty twenty. What you intended to harm me, God intends to use for good, for the saving of many lives. I've quoted half of this verse many times. I'd say half the verse because somehow I missed including the last part, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And if I don't include that last part, I may mistakenly think that the good that can come from difficult situations would be mine alone. In other words, God will make good for me what others took from me. But that's only partially true. God can absolutely bring about good in all things, like Romans 8.28 states. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Good might not always look like what we think it should, though. It might be the transformation and growth in our own heart. Joseph forgave in spite of the facts. Some would argue that he had every right to get even with his brothers for all they had done to him. He had the power, but instead he chose the greater good. We might not understand why bad things happen, but we can trust God will work things out for a greater good in the end. It doesn't make the hard times easier or alter the hard facts of life, but it does give us fresh hope in the dark times that light will shine again. Where God is, good is being worked. We don't have to see it. We can choose to believe it because we believe in God. We've learned a lot about Joseph in these latter chapters of Genesis. He certainly had a life full of extreme highs and lows, and God did allow Joseph to see some of the good that came out of the harm his brothers intended for him. But the good wasn't just for Joseph. It was for a father whom he loved, and it was also for the brothers who betrayed him. In the end, both sides were humbled and brought to a sweet place of good by our good God. We may not feel good, but we can stand in the truth and in the courage after reading Joseph's story that good is there. Now, in moving on to the six practical steps to forgive podcast episode, Lisa says, I want to continue in the story of Joseph, but I want to go to a little bit of a different place. I want to turn over to Exodus. If we look in Exodus, let's start in verse six. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. 
but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, what happens here? You remember from the last episode that there was a famine in the land, and Joseph had been promoted to the second most powerful man behind Pharaoh in Egypt. Basically, Joseph got that promotion because he could interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh had a dream, or you could even say revelation from God, that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. During the seven years of plenty, Joseph instructed Pharaoh that they needed to develop a system to save up the food that would be provided for them in those seven years of plenty, so that during the seven years of famine, starvation would not wipe out the country of Egypt. Joseph was so effective at this when the famine not only reached Egypt, but reached extending lands all the way even to Israel where his brothers were. What then happened is the brothers came looking for food, as did many other people, because Egypt had provisions that others didn't have. So, his eleven brothers wind up in Egypt because Joseph forgives them and they plant themselves there, basically. They multiply and become the entire nation of Israel. Have you ever wondered how the Israelites got to be slaves in Egypt? When we hear the story of Moses, we don't often connect it to the story of Joseph. But Moses and Joseph are very much connected because how the entire nation of Israel got to be slaves in Egypt was because of this verse right here. It says in verse 6, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land, Egypt, was filled with them. Verse 8, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Verse 9, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Verse 11 says, They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Okay, so this is how the entire nation of Israel became slaves in Egypt. Then the Israelites cried out, and cried out, and cried out, and eventually God rose Moses up to then go and deliver the people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. And then the whole story of Exodus unfolds. But here's what I want to challenge you. Go back and think about where did this start? This oppression of an entire country, where did it start? Let's go back and look at a verse that we read in the last episode in Genesis 37. I want you to look at starting at verse 4. When his brothers, when Joseph's brothers, saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. This is where it started. What seems so small, like it doesn't seem like a big deal when we read these scriptures that Joseph's brothers hated him, but here's what I want you to know. This right here, this decision by his brothers to hate him, this unrelated hatred of Joseph by his brothers, this unforgiveness of the brothers toward Joseph started a chain of events that would lead an entire nation to be slaves in Egypt. You see, this is what I really want us to think about today in our life. Sometimes we think that our decisions don't really impact too many other people. What we don't realize is that there's never just a little bit of hate. There's never just a little bit of unforgiveness. There's never just a little bit of bitterness. All that mess gets multiplied and extends far wide and far deep. It has far-reaching implications into future generations that we cannot even see. Here's what the enemy wants us to think. That our hate is just a little bit of hate. Our bitterness is so justified. It's just a little bit of bitterness. I wonder if the enemy was whispering that to Joseph's brothers, because I'm telling you, their decision to hate Joseph and the chain of events that that set off, eventually we can see that the multiplied impact of that, that it affected deeply. Think about the cries of the Israelite people that we read about in Egypt. The cries of so many people, and the brothers' hatred of Joseph is what set up that chain of events that deeply impacted all these people. There's never just a little bit of hate. 
there's always a multiplied impact. So the entire nation of Israel suffered oppression and slavery for centuries. Why? Because a few brothers on an ordinary day got a little jealous and allowed bitterness and anger to slip in. And in the moment these emotions slipped in, the course of history changed. In a moment. May we never assume our moments don't matter. The decisions we make every second of every day matter. There are no little moments or little sins. There's a domino effect to it all, and it reaches far beyond what we can even know. Please understand, no part of this is meant to heap more hurt on you or condemn you in any way. But awareness and conviction are good. Moments matter, and future generations will be impacted by our choices today. Let's watch for any moment today where we have the choice to let anger, envy, or something else negative slip in. And when it shows up, let's recognize it, refute it, and replace it with God's spirit of love. Truthfully, this idea of forgiveness is covered in depth in Lisa Turker's book and study titled Forgiving What You Can't Forget, Discover How to Move On, Make Peace with Painful Memories, and Create a Life That is Beautiful Again. In them, Lisa discusses the connection of Joseph to Moses and how the hatred and unforgiveness of Joseph's brothers started a chain reaction of events that eventually led the nation of Israel to be slaves in Egypt, an enslavement that God would one day use Moses to deliver them from, as found in the book of Exodus. As mentioned before, this is definitely a valuable reminder that the choice of unforgiveness has a multiplied impact that extends far beyond what we will ever know or maybe ever personally see. In closing, listen to yet another perspective of Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, I came across in my research. This one I found in my Simple Pursuit devotional book. But before I start reading it to you, though, let me share that I feel these words are the perfect prayer as we are closing out this episode. With that in mind, Let's begin my reading of this devotional titled, Intended for Good, like this. Father God, we know the evil one strategically plans his attacks to kill, still, and destroy. He draws his bow, launches arrows, and tries to bring people to their knees. Joseph was shot with the arrow of rejection that came from his brothers, the arrow of false accusation from his Egyptian master, and the arrow of abandonment from his peers. But you are not blind to these schemes. You reveal your power and sovereignty by transforming them into glory, for the ultimate good of one and many. Help us be encouraged. There's always more to the picture than we see. You saw Joseph through his trials, knowing that his faithfulness through heartache and despair would give way for him to become a key figure in the freedom that was in store for the Israelites. Help us have courage amid the pain of a broken heart, gushing wounds, and deep anguish. You see us, Father God, and you see redemption. You see beauty coming from our ashes, and not one but thousands of flowers shooting up from a desolate ground. We long to trust in you. We are not forgotten, and you are working all things out for our eternal good. Jesus, give us hope to believe the good you're bringing. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, as mentioned before, in the next episode, we will be starting the book of Exodus. It's 40 chapters long. I provided a couple of links to some Bible Project videos in the show notes if you'd like to get a head start in our studies. Can I ask everyone a favor before we end today's episode? Could you please share with one or two or even three friends? Directly sharing with your friends is the absolute best way to help others find out about our study times together in all of these episodes. To join with us as we dive into God's Word, book by book, chapter by chapter, one page at a time. And what perfect timing as we're getting ready to dive into a new book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, in our next episode. Thanks in advance as this truly does mean the world to me. In the meantime, though, This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.